So we're going to just journey through the Word together. If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it and open it. If you've got a Bible, let's just hear, just do this for me. Let's just hear that noise because it's a, it's a dying reality, I think, in, in churches because people bring their phones. If you've got a phone, that's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. If you've got a phone, just do this. It's not the same, is it? Can't hear it. But uh, there's something about having a Bible and just hearing that, hearing that rustle of paper so brilliant um, we've started doing uh, the Lectio uh, app uh, for families as, as a family we've been looking at doing that so we're doing that in the morning before the kids go to school and we thought well they love their iPads so we'll do the morning on their iPads so they're, they're you know they enjoy the technology but I said to Helen we have to also make sure that they're getting into a real Bible because they have to know where the book of Amos is. Now, I've opened it before we got there because I don't want the cold sweats of trying to find it uh, under pressure. <laughs> um, but it's that, it's so important for us to know the word and to know uh, the, the word in our hands, turn to it. So great. Last week, oh, so for those of you that are visiting, we've been on a journey for a year and a half now, and we're going from the start of the Bible chronologically right through to the end. And so that's over a three-year period and there was a reading plan put out at the start of that time and we invited everyone to join us on that and uh, and so we have been journeying through we got through david solomon we skipped over elijah and elisha and i'm so sorry we'll come back to them um, at some point maybe when we get to the new testament we'll look at uh, john the baptist and draw in elijah there possibly but we looked at jonah last week and we tried to bring not the big fish or the whale, but try and bring the main thrust of what Jonah's message, the book, was trying to convey. What we know from last week from Jonah is that he was uh, the reluctant prophet, and reluctant in, in a few ways. Reluctant because he, he didn't want to, to go where God had sent him, and reluctant because he didn't want to share what God told him to share. Can anyone else relate to that? I can. That nervousness sometimes to go to a place to share a word that you don't want to share. And, and I think Jonah's a great example of ultimately what we can all be like sometimes. Jonah was reluctant and we said it was fair enough. He gets a hard time, Jonah, and some of it is absolutely justified. But in other regards, Jonah was told to go to one of the fiercest peoples of the day, a people who had uh, habitually attacked uh, and, and threatened God's people and who had a habit of impaling their enemies. Now, how do you feel if God says, right, on you go, go and chat their door. You're thinking, no thanks. 
I'd rather not. Jonah runs in the opposite direction. And the other dynamic was he was told to go to them and not do, I think, what we kind of would like to do in our modern day with sharing the gospel. And I say, God loves you. God loves you. And if you come to Christ, it's going to be incredible. Is that true? Yes. But there's more to the gospel than that. People don't know they need a savior unless they realize they're a sinner. Amen? And so we have to convey that reality as well. We have to do it well. We don't go up and slap people, but we have to convey that reality so that they realize not just their want for Jesus, but their need for Jesus. And so obviously Jesus was not in Jonah's mind in that frame when he walked, but he walked the streets and he shared a simple phrase. And basically was, turn before judgment. We're going to give it a synopsis. Judgment's coming, turn. And what happened? They turned. God was at work beyond Jonah. God was at work beyond Jonah for their good, for Nineveh's good. God was doing something at the time. So amazing. We see Nineveh, Nineveh repented, but they only repented for a generation. We talked about that uh, a few weeks ago. We're called to repent and return. We're called to rise up. And then we're called to raise up. And so where are you on that scale? That's been a, a theme over the past number of weeks. Where are you on that scale? Are you at the point where you've just returned to God? Are you at the point where you're rising up in your faith for God? Or are you at the point where you're raising up others for God? And what happens if we don't raise up? Well, what happened to Nineveh? They repented. They came to know the Lord in that moment. They honored him for a short time. But did they raise up? No. And after generation that passed, they returned to their, to their, their ways, their sinful ways. Interesting, though, as you look at the timeline, you see that there's a period of quiet that happens after Jonah. And it's documented. Uh, and we see as we look at Amos, there was a season of peace. The Assyrians were not a threat for a season. How is that? Because Jonah went and shared that message. A period of peace and quiet in the region. Every one of us longs for a period of peace. We all want to live in a season of peace. We look at the world around us and we say, I think it was, was it Laura Sharp who said, and rightly so, what, what's your one hope for the future when we're interviewing our little ones and our less little ones? Um, what is your hope for the future? And she said, peace. Yes, we all want peace. But here's the challenge. When we live in peace, how do we live in peace? When we experience peace, how do we live in peace? How do you live in a time of peace? Where is your heart of faith in a time of peace? What is the danger of perpetually living in peace in this time? The danger is that we become perhaps a bit complacent. What we'll see uh, when we look at the people of Israel is that in their season of peace, and it was a short window of peace, they began to serve themselves. They 
settled. They didn't see the need for God anymore, so they began to settle. Then they strayed. And, and I'm so conscious as we enter the Minor Prophets, we're entering a really challenging time in the history of God's people and world history. And I know that we all want a positive and uplifting word. You've got out of bed this morning, you've come to church, you want to be encouraged, yeah? You want to be encouraged. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start at the end today and then go back so that we can hear the good news, hear the positive ending first, and so that at least before I perhaps lose some of you, uh, I want you to hold on to the positive bit first. Stuart, if we could turn to chapter nine of, of Amos, we should be able to get that on the big screen. Chapter nine, we're gonna look at verses three, uh, 13 to, to 15. In fact, we can go maybe a little bit before that. Let me see, chapter nine. Let's go to verse 11. Let's do it, verses 11 to, to 15. So this is the word of the Lord. This is Amos speaking at the end of the text after everything. He says, in that day, this is a prophetic word, God speaking through Amos, in that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Does that sound good? You say, thank you, Lord, amen. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is a declaration of the Lord. He will, everyone say will, will. He will do this. Verse 13, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, in a sense, to carry on, will overtake the sower of seed. What does that suggest? A time of harvest, a time of bringing in and of, of getting the benefit of your labor. Uh, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them in, on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. So there's the good news. You think, wow, who loves having something to look forward to? Yeah? Who right now has something coming in your diary you're looking forward to and you think, bring it on? Yeah? Let's magnify that by an immeasurable number and think about what the people were hearing in this moment. This is good news for the people of Israel. So we start on the positive, on how it ends. But we have to note a couple of things from what I've just read. The phrase is, the days are coming and I will restore. What does that suggest? It's in the future which means that it's a contrast to their now. And so the question is, what does it mean that it's a contrast to their now? What is the opposite reality that they are experiencing? What preceded this promise? What preceded chapter nine? Who always loves to open a book and read the last page to see how it ends? Don't do that. Oh, and pray for you at the end. You want to know how it ends. You want to see the, the good news. What preceded this though? 
So some questions for us this morning as we think, and good questions for us to ask when we look at the Word of God. What preceded this promise? Why did that happen? Who did it affect? Where did the people end up and how was it resolved? So we're going to look at these questions a little bit over the next 15 minutes or so as we journey together. This is, a, as I say, a, a dark chapter in the history of God's people. Uh, and it's, uh, but I think it's a book for today. If you ever want to see a book for today, the book of Amos is a book for today. My goodness, getting into it this week, such a challenge, but such an encouragement as well. And it constantly reminds us of the timeless nature of God's word, that when we look at what they were going through, we can relate it to what we are going through. What does the book of Amos reveal for us? Well, it reveals the nature of humanity, but it also reveals that there is always hope. Turn to your neighbor and say, there is always hope. There's always hope. In Christ, in God, there is always hope. Now, can you, do you think our, our, our neighbors out there can say that? I don't think they can. I haven't sensed that voice over the past few years. People have been stressed and frustrated. Have they turned to you and said, don't worry, there's always hope? Have you heard that in the world? I haven't heard it. I haven't heard it. But in Christ and in God, there is always, always hope. So, what preceded this promise of abundance? What preceded this? Well, we know that obviously it was a time of challenge. There was severe judgment that fell upon the people. Many things preceded the judgment that fell upon the people. Now, we know that from this time, there are generations of, of turmoil. But what we say, what we see from Amos and what I said was that this was a period of peace. Partly, I think, we could argue because Nineveh had fallen to its knees, the Assyrians had settled down, and there was no longer that threat. What did God promise King Asa when the nation repented? What did he say? You will have peace on every side. And so we have this period of peace again. And what we find in the period of peace is that the nation is run quite well in that you have economic prosperity. And in that, Israel starts to get a lot of trades going, a lot of alliances going. We touched on that last week and how that can be a problem as well. And it got me thinking about modern day. We look at our government. We won't go into anything in depth. But would you have a sense of frustration at the way the nations are run? Would that be fair? We're in church, so we'll phrase it carefully. We have a sense of frustration. But here's the question. What is the solution to the way the nations are being run? I think quite often people will say, well, you know, we're needing real economic prosperity. We're needing to get trade going. We're needing to build alliances among the nations. I think that's probably a voice that would be quite common. Question, is that the goal? Is the ultimate that Scotland and the UK are strong in their economic status and that we have alliances with our neighbors? Is that the goal? I think that is the, what, the picture that the world would create of a utopia is financial strength and 
peace with our, our neighbors. But here's a question. What's missing in that? Who's missing in that? God. Jesus Christ. The honoring of the one who came and died for my sin, for our sin. So what looked like prosperity in this time in Israel's history was actually very much like today. It became a godless prosperity. It was material wealth and an increase of it. And it was seen primarily in the possession or, or, or in possessions and in property. Again, how does the world view a time of success, material wealth, possessions, property, and in this case, in the time of, of Amos, second homes. That became a big thing, apparently, second homes. But at what expense? At what expense? It's always the same. The rich became much richer, and the poor became much poorer. What you find often in these times is that the middle class just disappears, and you have a minority of rich people and the majority of, of poor. I think we're potentially heading that direction again. Nothing new under the sun. What happens when people get caught up in that momentum of a, a nation that's pursuing wealth and possessions and property? What happens to people? Quite often, they take on more than they can handle. They bite off more than they can chew. Anybody else use that phrase? Don't know where that phrase came from. They bite off more than they can chew. And what happens in that is people start to fall into debt. Again, is that a reality for now? Absolutely. People are falling into debt, partly because of inequality, but partly because people are chasing after what, why is it the Joneses? Why is it always the Joneses? They chase after what the Joneses have and they overstretch themselves. What was the biblical structure for when you fell into debt and you couldn't repay it? What was the biblical structure? Well, that, that was the absolute grace. But what was the biblical structure? Slavery. And I know we think, oh, sharp intake of breath, but biblical slavery was not like modern day slavery. It basically was if I owed Daniel something that I couldn't repay, was it just a case that we just washed our hands of it and I walked away? Who loses out there? Poor Daniel. Daniel has been robbed. I have robbed Daniel. I haven't robbed Daniel. Not that he knows. <laughs> no. So what would be the solution? I would say, Daniel, I cannot pay you with anything I have, so I have to give you myself. So I will come and I will serve you for an agreed period of time until my debt has been repaid. I think that's justice. I think that's fair. When understood properly, because otherwise Daniel is robbed and I get to walk off and do it again. And it creates a culture of, well, there's no consequence. So biblically, when done well, it was I give myself to Daniel for an agreed period of time. Daniel is required to look after me in that place. And then at the end of our agreed period of time where I have served Daniel and repaid my debt, I am freed. What happens so often in Israel and has happened throughout the world is that that system was abused. People weren't released from their 
time of, of what is this, what's the phrase? Servitude is in, it's something to do with, it sounds like teeth. Is it indentured? Indentured servitude. So people were not released from that. They were kept in that. And they were forcibly kept poor. So that's what you find happening in this time. So you have rich people getting richer, poor people getting poorer. And then what you get is people drifting from God. As they get comfortable, they drift from God. And they let go of justice and they oppress the poor. So, so yeah, it looks good on the surface, a time of peace and prosperity, but the reality was very different. And even after all that God had done for them, they washed their hands of him. The two greatest commandments. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I think we've got that, Stuart. We could put it up if you've got it there. If you don't, then no problem. Chapter 2 of Amos, uh, verses 9 to 12, says... I've gone back to Joel. That's not going to help. Let's stay in Amos. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. Uh, I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was sturdy oak. I destroyed the fruit. Uh, I brought you, so let's go to verse 10. I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. God's saying, after all I've done for you, you're in this land, you're getting the benefit and the fruit of this land, but you've washed your hands of me. You've let go of loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you aren't loving your neighbor either. So that's where they were. So what happens? God raises up someone to speak. Enter Amos 1 verse 1. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa. What he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of uh, Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That's important. That's in the first verse. Something's coming. Jeroboam was widely acknowledged as one of the worst, uh, go most godless, most godless, least godly kings at the time uh, throughout the history uh, of, of the people. He is a voice that's brought across the border. Can you imagine someone coming across the border and telling us what to do? Oh, in Scotland, can you imagine? Well, praise God, someone came across the border and told them what to do. Let's never despise that idea. He comes across the border to warn, so he's in Judah, he comes across the border into Israel to warn them of what's coming. And in their eyes, his warning starts really well. He declares judgment on Damascus, those folk far away, Damascus. And then he goes from Damascus to those people in Gaza. God's going to judge them. And then what does he say after that? Well, he goes to Tyre and Edom and the Ammonites and then Moab. And then what does he say? He says, God's going to even judge where I'm from, the people in Judah. And they're all like, come on, God, judge all those folks. Rightly so. Do you see what they've been doing? But here's what it unravels. Here's where it goes wrong in their eyes. He then says, God's going to judge you as well. God is bringing judgment 
on you. Why? Well, chapter 2, verses 6 through to 8, says, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel. You can imagine the tumbleweed in that moment rolling across the ground. They're like, did he just say Israel? Punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell the righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. There's that, that lack of honoring our neighbor. The slavery that is not biblical slavery or biblical servitude, if, that, if you feel more comfortable hearing that word, I understand because of the connotations of our modern day. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground. They obstruct the path of the needy. So that's their interaction with the poor, with each other. And here is the idolatry, the sin that they're involved in. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. What was happening? They brought in worship of all the gods. Let's go back to the Tower of Babel, of Babel, where God took out a portion for himself, which became Israel. The rest of the nations were handed over to their own desires, ultimately to the authorities that would take over the false gods as, as uh, Psalm 106, Deuteronomy 32, suggest and imply were angelic at the time. And they, and they start to get involved in, in idolatry. The main vehicle for worship uh, at the time in the, in the false religions was going to a temple and sleeping with a cult prostitute because that was their vehicle for worship and they believed that it was going to bring blessing upon them blessing upon their family fertility and here's a thing for our modern day that was going to solve the world's problems save the world that was going to be in a natural sense it was going to bless the world this pursuit of the earth and its fertility over pursuing the God of heaven. So there's all this stuff going on. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral. So they're, they're in essence stealing. And in the house of their God, they drink wine obtained through fines. So you have all this incredible stuff going on and it has to be addressed. Who's got a friend that gives you the slap and the cuddle? Everyone needs a friend that will give them a slap and a cuddle. We just love getting the cuddle, don't we? But sometimes we need someone in our lives that can say, Stuart, Stuart, <laughs> let's not name names. Stuart, get back on track. Stuart, come on. You're straying. You're losing it. What's God's response? Well, What's going to come because of this reality? Why did it happen? Why did these things ever happen? Because all of us have a weakness. Now you know what your weakness is, and that's between you and God. But everyone's got a weakness, and for these people, it might have been, what is it, uh, the, the pursuit of uh, money, sex, and power. Caught up in all those things, pursuing those things. What's God's response? Well, he does what God does. And this is again where we can say, thank you, Lord, because God is good, amen? God is good all the time, all the time God is good. What does a good God do when we take our eyes off him and we stray? Does he send a bolt of lightning or fire from the heavens? 
What does he do? He warns. He sends someone along their path to warn them. We get warnings in chapter 3. Uh, don't worry about putting them up, Stuart, just for time's sake. Chapter 3, verses 7, 11, 12, and then chapter 4, verse 2. What were the warnings? There's a famine coming. There's a drought coming. There's disease coming. There's strife and war coming. There's natural disasters coming. And there's then going to be the worst possible thing that they could imagine. In the land that they are loving life in, suiting themselves with their eye off of God and onto their own needs and their own wants, God says, I'm going to kick you out. That blessing that you got, you're losing. Exile is coming. God, like Jonah to Nineveh, God loved them enough to warn them. For God so loved the world. How did he love them? Through Jesus Christ. But in Jonah, how did he love them? Through Jonah's word of warning. Same with this. Amos comes and he warns. I'm out of time. So let me just draw this to a close and we'll, we'll tie it into next week because it's all going to link together. Who did it affect? Absolutely everyone who had abandoned God. Everyone that had succumbed and let go of that righteousness and justice. And so, let me see how I can close this off on a word that's going to uplift us for the rest of the day. I think it's incredible that even when people and nations lose their focus, God gives them the chance to turn. He loves them enough to warn them. When we look at our nation, what is the solution for our nation? I wonder whether if we're so caught up in the radio and the TV, our answer sometimes can be, well, we need a new government. We need uh, justice in terms of people getting a fair share of things. We need um, lower taxation. We need uh, better prices at the pump. What should our first answer always be? We need to fall to our knees and cry out, God, you are the solution. We need a holy people, a, a government that will go to God first before they go to themselves or each other. But what I love is that God gives the nations the chance. He reaches out and says through Amos, through Jonah, and through others we'll look at in the coming weeks, here is the way, walk in it. Turn back to me. The incredible patience of God. But what we see with Amos and others is that God's patience eventually runs out because the people just refuse to listen. And so God has to act. I don't know where we are at as a nation. I don't know where God is at in terms of his, uh, his his reservoir of patience for us as a nation. But I think that at least for us, we can champion his way and encourage others to do so. Amen? Amen. We'll come to the rest of that next week.